Look at these three words written larger than the rest, with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, we the people. I just realized what that is. <laughs> Did you? Yes. Well, that's our new intro. Hopefully you guys uh, enjoyed it. This is David's uh, first not, time hearing it. I've heard it previously. I'm not happy about that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let us know what you think. Uh, we're still open to changes on that, but that's Let the us know if now. you also know where that comes from. Um, yeah, bonus points if minute. you do. <laughs> free hour of legal work. But it's I, not actually true. Got, You're not going to get I free got hour. there. Yeah, no, we're, we're, yeah. We, we can't do that, unfortunately. <laughs> If someone wants to endow that as some sort of scholarship um, or, I guess, relief fund, Which we'd be happy to discuss actually a discuss good lead-in to our disclaimer for today. So nothing in this video constitutes legal advice. You know, seriously, if you're getting legal advice from a podcast, you might want to reconsider that. Don't use anything that we tell you in a court of the law. That's not wise. And all of the opinions expressed are the opinions of the individuals expressing them, not necessarily the opinions of the Lex Rex Institute. But with that said, welcome to the Lex Rex Institute podcast. Welcome. I'm your host, David Truschel, and I'm the lead writer for the Lex Rex Institute. And I'm your co-host, Alexander Haberbush. I'm president of the Lex Rex Institute and also a constitutional attorney, though I am not speaking in that capacity today. The Lex Rex Institute is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization, and if you'd like to learn more about what we do and how you can get involved, please visit our website, lexrex.org. That's L-E-X-R-E-X.org. All right, so uh, what have we got to discuss this week? Well, last week we had some fun looking at some documents that were released under California's Public Records Act. Oh, yes, the exciting world of PRA requests. I've been doing a lot of those on a case that we're working on right now, actually. Mm -hmm. which you guys may hear about in the news in a couple of weeks, so keep your eyes open for Lex Rex News. But at any rate, uh, we had so much fun investigating the case of two LAPD police officers who were ultimately fired because rather than respond to a robbery in progress, they set off in pursuit of Pokemon because this was 2017 and they, like most Americans, were playing Pokemon Go. But it, it was a hard call to make, but you know, according to that disciplinary board, they made the wrong one. They should have responded to the call instead. They should have been more concerned about the robbers, less concerned about Snorlax. So now you know. But Again, not legal advice, but now you know if... If your employer is asking you to do something while you're on duty, particularly if your job is enforcing the law, you're going to have to put that at a higher priority than catching Pokemons. True, true. But at a any Pokemon, rate... Pokemon, uh, as, as we said last time. <laughs> we had so much fun with that, we decided to look into some more interesting, unusual instances of document requests, whether through the Federal Freedom of Information Act or equivalent state ones. So most of these, I've seen all of these. You have seen, I think, one or two of these. But we're going to go through several of them, starting with one. I don't remember any of these. <laughs> well, one of these I did tell you about. You may not remember, but I will go ahead and share that with you. Let me just pull this up. This one comes to us from Seattle. I believe this is from the mayor's office. So th th this must not, because PRA is a California act. So they've obviously got an equivalent in yeah. Washington. This is under the equivalent for Washington State. I'm not 100% sure what they call it there. Some of these articles do note it. Some of them don't. Anyway, let me go ahead and pull that up. You want me to read that? 
Sure, go ahead. Last year, Seattle-based Phil Mosek, I assume that's how that's pronounced, requested text messages sent by Mayor Ed Murray to his staff. Unsurprisingly, the mayor's press team responded fairly quickly, albeit in a fairly surprising way. See if you can read this. Uh, you got to zoom in a bit. I think it's just barely legible. The content itself is not terribly interesting, but it's really the medium that they chose for this response. Yeah, I'm not going to be able to okay. read that. So the reason why it's a little illegible here is that the way they chose to... Oh, I see what they've done. The way they chose to produce these text uh, messages... <laughs> they, they've Xeroxed the screen from this iPhone, and that's how they're producing these text messages for Discovery? Yes, so they took the phone that they were sent to, they opened the text messaging app, placed the phone physically on a copier, (laughs) made a copy, and this is what they provided. You can just barely make out the message. (laughs) It did work. Uh, It's difficult to read, but it did work. You know, I've in a lot of the cases I've worked on, there have been people who have been pretty technologically inept. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever seen a Xerox cell phone screen before. It's a it's an interesting strategy. It's hard to argue that it's not a, a legitimate fulfillment of the request. I don't. Yeah, you know, there have been instances where I haven't been able. To, clients have have balked and, and griped every possible way they could about handing over their cell phone to me because they didn't want to download the messages from it. You know, I need my cell phone for work, so on and so forth. Honestly, if I could just tell them to go and Xerox the relevant pages, it might be a lot quicker for everybody. It's worth looking into. I would recommend that you have them adjust the settings here a little bit. If it's a good yeah, copier... contrast isn't really working for them. If yet. it's a good copier, you can usually get something of slightly higher quality than this, but it is technically legible. And so I guess kudos to them. Apparently, it was a quick response and, you know, on a technical level, responsive to the request. So good for them. Good for yeah, the Seattle Mayor's Office. <laughs> they're, they're providing the records in the manner in which they were maintained, mm-hmm. which is what the rules call for. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So technically, it might be better than the regular way of producing records. That's something to think about. Anyway. So that's Seattle. We have one a little closer to where I grew up. This is Brockton, Mass. I used to play them in football in high school. This was part of a broader request. This all comes to us uh, from muckrock.com, which does a lot of work on this sort of public access to records work. So they were contacting police departments throughout the country, asking them about their use of drone technology. They contacted Brockton, Mass PD, and apparently... This is exactly what they got back. A PDF attached to an email with no text. And it shows this. Our current fleet of drones. And and it's got pictures of UFOs from looks like Earth versus the Flying Saucers or one of those 1950s movies. Yeah. So a still image of a 1950s sci-fi movie with some flying saucers. They go on. This is... And a a balsa wood (laughs) model model airplane. All right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which they have labeled our super top secret our drone. Our top secret drone. Yeah. This. And then finally, right. they say plans for our super double, super, super double secret drones. <laughs> Open parenthesis. D- please don't tell anyone. No close parenthesis. But it's instructions for assembling a paper airplane. Yeah. What was the document request that these were produced in response to? Let's see what the exact request is. If they've, um, I, 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 I want to know if these were pre-existing records or if they were produced in response to the request. Let's see if it has. Um... If we can't find the language, my guess is they probably asked for all documents and records you have relating to drones. That's, I think that's and likely. somebody made as a joke these documents in the past, so now legally you've got to disclose them. I think that's, they sent a follow-up email 
to the officer who sent this to them, asking, just to confirm, you're saying you don't have any responsive documents? Then the article they have about it says, quote, they never no, responded. those are the responsive documents. <laughs> then, after they published the article, so this is an addendum to muckrock.com's article about this, the, the officer emailed back and said, Mr. Brown, apparently my attempt to be entertaining in my response to Mr. Musgrave was not well accepted. Please pardon my levity. The Brockton Police Department does not have a drone program. Okay, so he may have produced them in response to the, the request. That's, ah, okay. I think I've found it. All documents created from January 2005 to the date this request is processed related to the agency's use of aerial drones, etc., etc., etc. use of. Okay. So the, these were probably not responsive. They probably were produced as a joke. I, I, I think we can conclude that. Yeah, that seems safe. Oh, and then this is carrying another theme on from last week when we discussed an instance where a group of attorneys had filed a habeas corpus petition on behalf of oh, zoo yes. elephants. <laughs> habeas pachydermis corpus, right? <laughs> or however the Latin would work there. <laughs> because it's not, it's not habeas anthropos corpus, no. so why, why not habeas you'll, pachydermis? You'll have to forgive us for our very amateur Latin, but... <laughs> I, I think one of those words wasn't even Latin. I think it might have been Greek. I think Anthropos is, is, is only Greek, <laughs> yes. But carrying on that theme, and we, we had to leave that issue inconclusive because we concluded we did not know how habeas corpus rights devolve on elephants. A similar instance, a request that was sent under whatever New Jersey's public records law is to the Department of Agriculture asking for autopsy results for a dolphin that was found dead in New Jersey's South River. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, so they wanted to know... What caused this dolphin's death? Probably trying to yeah, follow was up it, on... Was it foul play or was it an accident? <laughs> that's, that's one way to look at it, I suppose. If I had to guess, since this went to the Department of Agriculture, I assume they were trying to figure out if it was a pollution issue. Well, the Department of Agriculture has got their own SWAT team. Really? Are we sure that's true they acro they, across they, the country? I'm or... pretty sure that's true. There, there are a number of federal aid... Well more than a number. I think there are dozens of federal agencies that have their own SWAT teams, but among them is the Department of Agriculture. Well, this is the New Jersey Department, though. This is not the federal. Oh, oh, never mind. So, yeah, they, we, they we, we don't know whether New Jersey DOA <laughs> has, has a SWAT team, but we do know that they have apparently staked their own position on the whole animal rights question when they refused to release the autopsy results on the grounds that it would constitute a violation of rights to medical privacy. Medical privacy for the dolphin, they're saying? Yes. So, oh. the response. <laughs> now, I actually, I can answer that. I don't know the answer to the habeas corpus one, because that's a common law standard. Mm -hmm. There's going to be thousands of cases that might control whether or not different persons or entities are subject to habeas corpus. In the case of medical privacy, that's all statutory. They're going to define who's subject to that, and dolphins are not within the purview of that legislation, unless New Jersey has some very unusual laws compared to the rest of the state. Well, Muckrock did follow up a bit. They cited a specific paragraph of the statute, the Department of Agriculture did, and this is... Of, their, of the health privacy code. Yes. This is all evidently right. what it says. Following record, oh, or, or sorry, rather, this is um, a carve out of the public records law. It says the following records shall not be considered to be government records subject to public access pursuant to, et cetera, et cetera. Information concerning individuals as follows information relating to medical, psychiatric, or psychological history, diagnosis, treatment, or evaluation. In individuals has got to be a defined term in this, in this code. I'm sure it is, and I'm sure it doesn't include dolphins. I think that's probably... They, they usually say it refers to natural persons, which has a legal meaning. That's, that's probably a good bet. 
I have not followed up myself. I guess we can we can possibly revisit this. We'll get to the bottom of this, maybe. Yeah, if anybody knows New Jersey law, to see whether, whether or not it's explicit that it only refers to human individuals. We do not know what became of that one particular dolphin, and perhaps this is a cover-up that goes all the way to the top of New Jersey. Mm-hmm. I think it's likely. I think it's likely. I think the government, New Jersey government, may have been involved in the demise yeah. of that. Uh, we'll, we'll never know, though. <laughs> Since they denied this request, it's a lot of corruption that goes on in in the New Jersey. Uh huh. <laughs> in the world of New Jersey dolphins. I, I'm imagining a whole film noir where you got a Sam Spade type character investigating the death of this dolphin, but it goes far deeper, and that pun was not intended than he ever intended. Well, I mean, hey, you've got Atlantic City, Atlantis, underwater. Maybe there's something there. Maybe this is some kind of genuine earth-shaking conspiracy. We'll we'll never know, I guess. It could be. It could be. We just don't have the manpower or the resources to investigate this kind of story. But if you want to enable the Lex Rex Institute to be able to send out private investigators to determine with certainty the cause of dolphin deaths across the country, contribute online at www.lexrex.org. You will probably need to send us some kind of note clarifying that's what the donation is for. We don't currently have... <laughs> any way of earmarking those funds for that program, which and it's not yeah, that high which on in its current form does not exist. But if you'd like it to, I guess you can talk to us. We'll see what we can do about that. We can't. We can't. Uh, we can't promise that though, because then we jeopardize people's tax exemption from the donation. Yeah. If, if they're getting a quid pro quo yeah, from it. Yeah, that's that's the reason we're not going to promise to open this dolphin investigations department. All right. So, anyway, that okay. wraps up this week's edition of Adventures in Public Records. Yeah. If you do have public records requests you'd like to send to us so we can report on those next week, go ahead and do that. But for now, let's transition into a more serious subject. And this is one that I've actually been working on pretty extensively over the past year or so. And that is the House investigation into the events of January 6th. So there were a few developments on that front over the past week. David, why don't you tell us about that? Well, the probably the most important is that the committee issued subpoenas to several sitting members of Congress. That's very unusual. Yeah, that's to the extent that we are aware. I think you looked into this and could only yeah. find corroboration that this had ever come from ethics committees. Right. Before, right. That's correct. Which is a very different circumstance. Uh, the, co- uh, the Constitution specifically empowers Congress to make its own rules of conduct and enforce them. So ethics committees, you know, it's it's clear yeah. that they have power to to bring members of Congress to to report to them. Right. That's correct. It's less clear whether that's true of other kinds of congressional committees. So given that we're not entirely certain that these subpoenas actually have authority behind them, I guess the first question really is what is a congressional subpoena? Because it's not the sort of subpoena that a court would issue, a law court would issue, but it does compel testimony or evidence of some kind. Yeah, so Congress is not a court. Uh, do you have to do what they say? You know, obviously, if you get a subpoena telling you you have to appear before state court, federal court, you got to respond to that. If you don't, you'll be found in contempt of court. But, you know, I guess sort of what you're asking is why does Congress have the power to issue subpoenas in the first place? Or? Sort of, yeah. And, you know, 
given that they're not actually conducting any kind of criminal investigation, this isn't a trial, it's got to have, in in theory, some kind of lawmaking purpose. Well, their, their activities sure look like they're a criminal investigation you've been watching over the past yeah, few Yeah, I guess that's sort of the unspoken element here <laughs> is that they've treated it more like a tribunal than a typical congressional committee. And that, that's actually something to keep in mind. Whenever you see congressional investigations into anything, that is not a criminal investigation. That is not a court of the law. That is a legislative proceeding. It exists for the purpose of making law, and that's it. If Congress isn't doing that, Congress is acting outside the scope of its congressionally authorized duty. So, what sort of law are they thinking about with the January 6th committee? Well, it actually says that straight in their enabling statute, which says they're to gather facts, circumstances, and causes related to January 6th. And then you read down, scroll down a few pages, and you get to basically for the purpose of proliferating new laws to prevent this from happening again. So Congress, for that purpose, is enabled to issue subpoenas to investigate, gather information, because you need information to legislate, right? So gather information pertinent to creating that legislation. And they have in the views of many, they have exceeded that prerogative in a lot of the subpoenas that they are issuing. So they can issue subpoenas, it has to be for a particular kind of purpose, but what's to stop someone from just saying, you know what, I don't feel like it, you know, don't wanna show up. Yeah, so <laughs> there, there actually is federal law on this. US code has a crime, you know, it's actually mm -hmm. on the books, called contempt of Congress. Now, as I mentioned, Congress is a legislative body. They can't charge people with crimes. They can't investigate crimes. So how does Congress end up getting this enforced? Well, really there's really there's three different ways, two main ways. First way is they can ask the Article Three branches of government to do it, so that'd be the courts, or they can ask Article Two branch of government to do it, that'd be the executive. So they can either go through the DOJ, ask them to bring criminal charges and have a criminal investigation, or they can go to the courts and you know, actually sue the person in a civil court and then bring a motion asking for charges of contempt to be brought against that person. But they can't do any of it on their mm -hmm. own. It's actually already going on with Steve Bannon, because remember, a few months ago, he was subpoenaed by the January 6th yeah. committee. He refused to show up or produce any of the documents, and now they are there are criminal contempt proceedings against yeah, him. that's right. Now, what would sort of make the interesting distinction there is that Steve Bannon, not a member of Congress, so the, you know, right. the authority that they have to subpoena him is you know, I think much clearer, fewer questions surrounding that. Whereas, you know, what would happen to a member of Congress refusing to answer a congressional subpoena? Can you argue that's still contempt of Congress? You know, I don't think there's anything in the law that prevents a congressional committee from issuing a subpoena to a sitting member of Congress. Assuming that that subpoena falls within the valid legislative authority of that committee, which is real iffy for the January 6th committee, I would argue it's not acting in a legislative capacity. DC Circuit Court of Appeals has disagreed with me on mm -hmm. that. Uh, but that's assuming they're acting legislatively. Yeah, they can propound these subpoenas. The trickier question is whether or not these subpoenas have any kind of binding effect upon a member of Congress. Because right. as I mentioned at the outset, actually I may not have mentioned this, I don't remember, but really the issue that comes into play here is what's called the speech and debate clause of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And what would that, you know, how does that interact here? Yeah, so if a sitting member of Congress 
is acting within a legislative capacity, they have absolute immunity from either civil or criminal prosecution, as well as you know immunity from having to produce documents and records relating to that legislative activity. Mm-hmm. So you know that'd be virtually anything that a congressman would do within their capacity as a congressman. Yeah, I, I think more troubling about these subpoenas issued against members of Congress is that, to me, it very much smacks of intimidation. Yeah, you alluded to this, that evidently the courts have found that there is a genuine lawmaking purpose to this committee. I haven't been following closely enough to, you know, to be able to say, oh, I know what they've been doing day to day. I, I've been following it very it closely. It does, it does seem. <laughs> you know, for, for, the, for those of you guys not aware, I've been working directly with John Eastman, who is one of the subjects of the January 6th committee's investigation, uh, sort of the center operator in that investigation right now. Currently, there is ongoing litigation where John Eastman has tried to prevent Congress from obtaining documents and records from his former employer, my alma mater, actually, where, you know, I studied under him, Chapman University where they're trying to get the school to release all of his emails relating to his legal advice provided to Donald Trump and his team. And yeah, what I was getting at is it certainly seems like one of the de facto reasons this committee has existed is to, as much as possible, try to air dirty laundry to the public. You know, it's I've I've heard it said, I think it's absolutely true, that congressional committee investigations are not courts, they're theaters. And that's very, very Mm -hmm. accurate. But... If a regular congressional committee investigation is a theater, well, what's this one? Because it's behind closed doors. All, all of the testimony they've gathered, all the documents they've collected, they've all been under seal of record because, you know, ostensibly they pertain to things that could have security threats to the United States. And, and then what we've had is, even though these things have been under seal of record, is we've had committee members going out and saying, oh, we found so much incriminating information. We found all of the all of these connections and all of these criminal actions that occurred on January 6th relating to January 6th, planning January 6th. And they've been able to talk about these things really with total impunity because nobody who's testified in front of them can contradict it Mm -hmm. because all of those people's testimony they provided was, again, under seal of record, and they'd be violating federal law if they were to go and talk about it. But because these congressmen are acting, again, under speech and debate clause immunity, they can say whatever the heck they want. They can break that seal of privilege whenever they want to and not face any kind of consequences. I'm sorry not face any kind of con- consequences <laughs> not face any kind of consequences for it yeah <laughs> and they've certainly been doing that really i think abusing that speech and debate clause privilege uh, but that's sort of what's going on right now it's i i think this is congressional overreach at its absolute worst we essentially have a witch hunt for people who have who aren't even accused of committing crimes for whom the criminal threshold of proof beyond a reasonable doubt for a crime could not possibly be met and they know that but you know, we've had them certainly using language that makes it sound like crimes have been committed. Yeah. And that same speech and debate immunity shields you from defamation suits as well. Is that correct? Shields you from everything. Yeah. You don't have to produce your records. You don't have to testify. You have immunity from lawsuit. You have immunity from criminal charges. You might remember it. So back in the 1970s, uh, the Pentagon Papers, which were classified Department of Defense documents. Yeah. And Mike Gravel took those documents and he read them on the floor of the Senate. Uh, he's still around, mm-hmm. I think, Mike Ravel is, but he, 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 you know, he's 
definitely left-leaning guy, opposed to the war in Vietnam, and he read the Pentagon Papers on the floor of the Senate. And really the only legal issues that came out of this where everybody said, even though Mike Ravel's disclosed classified documents, we can't do anything to him. But the mm -hmm. court did end up hearing two different issues, whether or not his staffers could be held accountable for, I guess, helping to organize those papers, providing them to him. And yeah. then whether or not the Washington Post, who published what Mike Ravel had said in their newspaper, could be held accountable. And in both instances, Supreme Court said no. If someone's acting on behalf of a member of Congress, that person is also subject to speech and debate clause immunity. Interesting. So this is a very complicated issue, and I'm sure that I'm, I'm getting way too much in the nitty gritty here. <laughs> Again, this is something I've been working on extensively over the past year. I've worked directly with John Eastman on this. John Eastman, by the way, does need your help funding his litigation. It, you can go to his funding page. That's givesendgo.com slash Eastman. Give, send, go, one word, dot com, slash Eastman. And he can really use money for the litigation defense because we cannot have Congress getting away with what they're trying to do here. I heard it best said both sides of this January 6th thing thought that they are protecting our republic. You know, both sides believe that what they're doing is protecting the integrity of our republic. People on Trump's side of the thing think that the election was stolen. And if the election genuinely was stolen, obviously you've got to do something about that. Now, I'm not in any way endorsing the people who broke into the Capitol or the rioters on January 6th, any of that, uh, but certainly the president's activities to have the vote audited. And obviously the pro-Biden camp, they think they're defending the Constitution because they think the election wasn't stolen. In any case, as far as we can tell, there's an untested element at play here. It, you know, it sounds like even the committee themselves had doubts previously. They Yeah, I don't know how they resolve those because there's no case law on point. <laughs> you know, there's no new law that they, they didn't know about back in January that they do now. Maybe they know something we don't. Maybe they don't know something we don't. Anyway, something to keep an eye on, though. If we do end up getting this into the courts, you know, if someone does decide to challenge, try to resist the subpoena, maybe that will actually clarify this, for, you know, precedent-wise for, for the future. So that's something to keep an eye on. Yeah. yeah, keep your eyes open for that. But th this is, as I mentioned, this is a case that, you know, I personally am directly involved in litigating. This is one that we cannot afford to lose. So if you want to contribute to John Eastman's fund, again, givesendgo.com slash Eastman. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on to the next case on our review, though. This one is I've, one that I find very interesting just in terms of the questions that it generates. Maybe you can help me out with, the, you know, some of the, the nitty gritty here. But there's been a lot of talk lately about social media sort of moderation or censorship rules. Yeah, particularly in light of the Musk thing, right? Well, that's that's certainly true. Yeah. So Elon Musk has talked quite a lot about his plans for Twitter, you know, restoring what he just is he the number one twit now. <laughs> Is that what is that what they call you when you own Twitter? Uh, I haven't confirmed that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they would probably just call him, you know, shareholder, but or or, or boss. Yeah, or... something like that. <laughs> you know, chief tweetman, maybe. But it hasn't just been Twitter. There's been you know conversations about the way all the major social media platforms handle content that users post. Yeah, and yeah, almost you know, I, I've a lot of people I know complain that they're content gets censored on social media. Actually, Lex Rex has been subject to that a number of times, particularly on YouTube. Uh, in our most recent 
episode in our saga against YouTube. So we had a video removed for allegedly supporting the idea that the 2020 election results were different from the outcome we ended up getting. So I guess that, the, you know, that there was widespread voter fraud sufficient to change the results of the election, which of course we had not said in our video because our entire position is, was, and remains, and will continue to be that we cannot possibly know who won an election when there has been no audit of the vote. So we contested that takedown notice. They agreed that we were right, restored our video. And then a few weeks later, they said, we're gonna take it down anyway. And they did that. So, yeah, just all that to say, we do have experience in social media censorship. Anyway, didn't want me to get into all that. Setting aside our history, this is obviously something that's been talked a lot about. People alleging that social media platforms are abusing their moderation privileges to basically tailor messages to some preferred brand, basically, you know. Certain kinds of content are acceptable, certain kinds aren't, and that's not based on really, you know, in the most extreme instances, is not arguably not. It's viewpoint discrimination. Yeah. And and it's, they've asserted they have a right to engage in viewpoint discrimination because they are private companies and they can choose which content is on their platforms. Yeah. So in any case, Texas enacted a state law that would open social media platforms of a sufficient size, uh, according to the report I read, it was platforms with more than 50 million users, yeah, to civil suits from users who feel that they have been discriminated against by these moderation policies, by these, uh, you know, actions and taking down posts, etc. Now, a tech trade group... Interesting approach. Yeah. A tech trade group challenged that law and initially a federal court issued a preliminary injunction that blocked enforcement basically stayed enforcement of that law said they couldn't keep that law we're not allowed to enforce that law because the judge had said that law is illegal yeah but then the most recent update on that case is that the fifth circuit court and i believe this was earlier this week on wednesday i think the fifth circuit court of appeals stayed the order of the federal court which had blocked enforcement of the law so basically opening up texas again to enforce this law at least while the appeal goes on so until there's a definitive conclusion so yeah so just to be clear about how injunctions work preliminary injunctions those basically apply for the duration of the case so they're not winning on the merits of a case they don't mean that you win that you were right what they mean is that a judge has reasoned and concluded that you have a substantial likelihood of success on the merits and that you will be harmed if certain action is not stayed Mm -hmm. so this isn't final by any means but it allows Texas to go forward at least temporarily with this policy, with this law. Yeah. But this raises a couple questions for me. A number of issues here. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Well, for one thing, you know, and I think I have an idea of how this would play out, but, you know, maybe you can confirm. The first question for me is how do First Amendment rights, because that's the basis that the... Tech free companies, speech rights specifically yeah, that yeah. the tech companies have held out and said no we have a first amendment right to you know make decisions about the content that we allow to be posted how would first amendment right. rights actually devolve on a corporation on a company as opposed to on an individual yeah so so corporations do have a right to free speech you know, corporations are considered legally persons mm-hmm. under u.s law some people don't like that, right. <laughs> but those people I've noticed also like being able to sue corporations. Yeah. Catch so 22 there. You can only sue persons. Yeah. So I, I don't know that you want to get rid of that per se, but corporations are considered to be people under the law. And as such, they do have free speech rights. Now, the rights that a corporation has with respect to political speech are going to be almost the same mm-hmm. as the right that a, a, a flesh and blood person 
would have. I, particularly Citizens United is gonna be controlling law on that most recently. Now, as far as commercial speech is concerned, there are obviously gonna be limitations because we know there's false advertising laws. Sure. Those have gotta be legal somehow. So if corporations make statements that are false or misleading, that is never protected speech. And if the court's analyzing any other restriction on commercial speech, that's not restriction on political speech, mind you, but other restrictions on commercial speech, they, they apply basically an intermediate scrutiny standard. And if you don't know what that means, look at the video that just came out last Friday on balancing tests, because we describe what intermediate scrutiny is mm -hmm. in that video. But basically what they have to show is that the government has a substantial interest in whatever law it's trying to make, that the means that it has implemented in that law directly advance that interest, and that the law is narrowly, I'm sorry, not narrowly, is reasonably tailored in other words, that it's a reasonable fit between the goal and the means chosen, uh, not necessarily the most restrictive way of doing it, but that there's a reasonable fit between the two. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that I've often seen crop up in these discussions about these social media platforms, people accusing them of not actually adhering to their own community standard rules. Like, you know, you, generally that's the basis yeah. on which they will strike down posts or... Th know. That would be false or misleading. Yeah, speech. so I was, that was what I... Or, exactly or potentially just ask. contract violation. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Interesting. it could even be just contract violation. But so if a court found that they had violated their own policies, that would, you know, essentially invalidate the First Amendment claim then? It could. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't want to say with certainty that it would, but it certainly could. It would be a claim that you'd want to raise in court. Fair enough. Yeah. Again, not, 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 uh, not offering legal advice. <laughs> So if you are no, no. if you are suing Facebook or something, <laughs> yeah. uh, don't rely on that. Although we do take these sorts of cases. Yeah, and so the the, the last question I had about this, something I th I thought was very interesting, is the fact that Texas tailored this to cover only companies of sufficient size, and you know yeah. I think you could argue that there are various motives for that, but in general there's you know, a piece of this whole overarching issue is whether or not companies like Facebook, like Twitter, can be considered essentially public square or not. Yeah, and can that's, you explain that's exactly where I was going to go with the, this. What the sort yeah. of the legal so, details are on that. So it, actually what's been alluded to more directly, so public square I think could be on point, but what's I think what's better and what's more on point is going to be what's called common carrier. Mm -hmm. and, and common carriers are going to be like railways, anybody who moves people or stuff from one place to another. And actually Justice Clarence Thomas, I think as recently as 2020, sort of alluded to the possibility that social media companies could be treated as common carriers. Now, mm -hmm. what's the significance of that? Well, basically what that means is that none of that stuff that I just told you about commercial speech applies anymore. <laughs> if a company is a common carrier, they essentially don't get the ability to engage in viewpoint discrimination. They are required to be content neutral as far as viewpoints are concerned. You know, if, if you're a railway company, you can't say we're not going to transport Democrats mm -hmm. because you know, Democrats might substantially rely upon railroads in order to get from one state to another. So extending that argument to social media platforms, if they were to be treated as common carriers, it would essentially end their ability to engage in viewpoint discrimination like this. They would be considered a quasi-state actor and therefore subject to the same kinds of free speech rules that state actors are subject to. 
which means they can't endorse one viewpoint above another. They can't really even, certainly can't discriminate against one viewpoint in favor of another. All of those free speech protections that you think of when you think of your right to free speech is they'd be like the government as far as those are concerned. Yeah. To the extent of your knowledge, is there any kind of reliable test that's been formulated to sort of mark out common carriers from other sorts of businesses? Or how would we go about determining whether that actually applies? Yeah, yeah. So this is from another Justice Thomas opinion, actually. He, this is his opinion in the Knight case. And, and what he said is that the definition of common carrier has long proven elusive. It's a very difficult term to define. There's not a widely accepted way of testing who is and is not a common carrier. Biggest thing is whether or not the company is, quote unquote, affected with the public interest. Hmm. And you know, probably the number one thing they look at in deciding that is going to be whether or not their power appears to be monopolistic. They're also going to look at, you know, whether or not there are barriers to entry for other people providing the same services within the same market sphere. And, you know, that's that's debatable with a company like Twitter. Yeah. You could say Twitter provides effectively the same service that Facebook does, but it's also very different from Facebook in a number of key ways. Yeah. And then, you know, I'm curious about that idea of there being barriers to entry. Is that down to a sort of pragmatic concern, like no one would be able to effectively challenge this company? Or does it have to be more like a legal barrier to entry? Well, it's it's part of the looking at whether or not the company is monopolistic. Okay. So it would be it'd be pragmatic. Okay. It'd be whether or not it's it's very, very expensive for a new company to start, whether small companies that provide similar services can meaningfully compete. With the, with the pre-existing one. Mm -hmm. You know, because somebody could start something that does pretty much the exact same thing as Twitter and start that up right now. But a lot of the advantage and usefulness of Twitter, the appeal of Twitter, comes from the fact that there's so doggone many people on Yeah, everyone is already there. You could have a service that provides the same thing, but if none of the people I like are posting on that, it doesn't matter, even if it's a better service, yeah, I'm probably no, not going to switch uh, to it. sort of the same thing that happens whenever they bring out new video formats. You know, some people will still say Betamax was better than VHS, but, you know, lots of studios went with VHS. Same thing happened. Blu-ray and D HD DVD. So it's not... I I'd argue even more so, because the, the advantage of social media is the social aspect. Exactly, right? yeah. So it's the, the mere fact that it has a lot of people on it, even that's if it's a, a horrible point. platform... Yeah makes it one that's going to yeah. get more yeah. people no, to join. You, you don't want to be, you know, in the shiniest room at a party that no one's attending. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you also don't want to be on 12 different platforms either, just to follow all the different celebrities you care about. Yeah, so that's interesting because, you know, they there have been efforts to form these sort of splinter versions of existing, I, I think especially with Twitter. Truth Media. There was a platform called yeah. uh, Mastodon. It's another one that I think will be interesting to keep an eye on because... Texas, it, you know, was probably always the likeliest candidate to implement a, a, a law like this, just given, you know, their constituency. But it could be a bellwether for other states that want to in, in, introduce yeah. similar measures. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know the details of the law, but I actually think sort of the most interesting aspect of this isn't even the free speech stuff. It's whether or not a state can even do this in mm -hmm. the first place, because obviously Communications are federally regulated through the FCC. Commerce is you know, constitutionally authorized. Congress has the power to regulate commerce between the states. And certainly, I'm not on Twitter a lot, <laughs> but it sure seems like you see a lot of tweets from people who aren't yeah. in your state. So that <laughs> would, I don't know whether it's 
with certainly those people aren't engaging in commerce, but maybe they are because I guess their personal data is all being collected and sold to the Chinese. So that could be that could be interstate commerce. Well, right? is, is China a state? <laughs> you know, if if, grow, if growing your own weed on your own land for your own consumption is interstate commerce, my bet is that selling so people's if China data weren't buying commerce. this data, then maybe Oklahoma would be. Is that what you're suggesting here? Right. Or okay. somebody outside of wherever Twitter is headquartered. Probably California. I think it, I think it's California. It's it's almost got to be, right? Yeah. Unless it's Microsoft, then it's Washington, Washington. yeah. But I'm pr- I'm pretty sure it's it's somewhere in California. I think almost all of the social media companies are somewhere in Silicon Valley. Yeah, so that's Texas trying to regulate California, isn't it? <laughs> you could argue. You could argue. Yeah, it, I haven't seen that part commented on at all. No. I actually think it's the more interesting part of this dispute. Yeah. Uh, but again, I can't comment on it in too much depth because I don't know the details of the law. Yeah, but so. it'll be an interesting one to keep an eye on as it proceeds. Because again, this is a, a temporary phase in the overall challenge that's being brought against the law. This is not by any means a declaration of victory on the part of the state of Texas. No. And if, if I had to guess, I don't think Texas is going to win on this purely for interstate reasons that I alluded to earlier. Mm-hmm. I think they lose on jurisdictional grounds. Yeah. Again, just sort of my knee jerk. I don't know the details of the law. I could be wrong. They may have crafted it in a way where that's not an issue. But certainly based on the reporting, if the law does what New York Times says it does, I, I don't see how they don't run afoul of that. Yeah. All right. So moving on from Texas, let's go to the other uh, electoral juggernaut state, California. Yeah. <laughs> Typically the other way in elections, though. Yeah, that's true. They're, you know, it's a cold war between Texas and California. Although we, we did we did provide the country with Nixon and Reagan. Yeah, that's true. California had a new law overturned by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals that was another in the pretty long list of California gun restrictions. And Yeah. <laughs> I think we're about the second word, maybe third word on the way that we treat gun rights in the country. Yeah, I, I suppose that depends on what you think the best way to treat gun rights is. But M- Most restrictive, yeah. I mean. yeah, <laughs> worst, worst in terms of adherence to the general thrust of the Second Amendment. I think, I think we can endorse that, that summary. But basically, California introduced legislation to prevent semi-automatic weapons being sold to anyone under 21 years of age and limiting everyone to purchasing one a month, which I think is a sort of odd detail there. Not yeah. sure I don't know why. how you're going to get by with one gun a month. <laughs> uh, you know, they, they wear out so quickly. I know. <laughs> you need those to live, right? <laughs> <laughs> but So anyway, I thought that was an interesting sort of tidbit But, but there. it does seem awfully arbitrary, though. I, I don't know how on earth buying more guns in a month makes somebody more likely to commit gun crime. Yeah, and it's following logic that I know California has followed at other times where they've uh, introduced permitting for ammunition. Seems like you might be more interested in limiting the amount of ammunition you can buy in a month because that's really what's going to limit your ability to shoot somebody. <laughs> that's, a, that's a sound point. You know, I, I think the California strategy as far as gun regulation is concerned is the more hoops we make for people to jump through, the more onerous and burdensome we make it to purchase a gun, the fewer people are going to end up buying them in the first place. And that's really their interest is just having fewer guns in the hands of their citizens. So they pass yeah. laws that way. Yeah, I think that uh, that rings true. But, uh, you know, we we are speculating, to be fair. We don't know. Yeah, they have not state. If they stated that as their goal, they'd get most of their gun laws overturned. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I did think one of the interesting things here is this age restriction. And yeah, I'm sure I, I'm probably missing something because obviously there's lots of rules that are formulated about how old you have to be for certain things. Obviously, 21 in 
virtually everywhere for drinking yep. age, so on and so to forth. Vote. Yeah. yeah, eighteen to join the military, so you can get a gun there. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, if <laughs> if you want to join the army, I guess that's a way around the and, and semi-auto they, ban. <laughs> they did have an exception for law enforcement officers too. Interesting, but in general, do you have a firm grasp of like how that's been related to equal protection issues? Yeah. So if you're looking at 14th Amendment equal protection, age is not going to be a protected class. Age does Mm -hmm. get rational basis review in a 14th Amendment context. Yeah. We're not looking at a 14th Amendment context here. Right. Litigants could have brought suit under 14th Amendment saying this is depriving young people of their right to bear arms just on account of their being young. This is violation of equal protection of the law. They didn't do that. Instead, they challenged it on Second Amendment grounds. And the court did say that as far as the handgun ban is concerned, it gets strict scrutiny. So that's, again, highest threshold. If you guys don't understand this level of scrutiny thing seriously, watch the balancing tests video because that should answer all the questions about that. But uh, they did say it gets strict scrutiny for the handgun ban. Interestingly, the lawsuit also investigated a long gun restriction that California had put in place also mm-hmm. pertaining to adults under the age of 21. However, that one they said got intermediate scrutiny. And under intermediate scrutiny, actually, the, the ban was upheld. So the difference in levels of scrutiny absolutely does matter here. The reason the long gun ban got intermediate scrutiny was because there were more exceptions. They had more ways that people who were under 21 could still, if they needed one, could get a long gun. They did not have those exceptions in place for the handgun ban. Pretty much the only exception was for law enforcement. Interesting. And so, I, you know, one of the things I've always been vaguely curious about is how exactly the law deals with the minor adult distinction in, in broad strokes. So basically, what's the basis for limiting certain rights to people over the age of majority? We're not, obviously, you could take that in some bad directions. That's not what I mean. <laughs> I mean yeah, let's not go more, there. More broadly in terms of like, you know, voting rights, what, you know, ultimately, what is the sort of legal well, principle that You know, the, the, the voting age was actually legally lowered by constitutional amendment. Mm-hmm. And the argument for that amendment was that if we're going to go send them off to die in wars, we ought to at least allow them some say in whether or not those wars take place. Yeah, which, you know, fair enough. Yeah. So, but, and, you know, I know historically... The, the parent, the parent-child relationship, so that the minor, you know, person under 18 status, yeah. is not that those people have fewer rights, is that those rights are held in sort of a trusteeship mm-hmm. by their parent or legal guardian. So minors got the exact same rights everybody else does, they are not able to control the exercise of those rights autonomously. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's worked that way. You know, think of like regencies in yeah, no, monarchical say, countries. I, I'm a, sort of an amateur medievalist, and the idea of an age of majority is very, very, very old. It's been in flux for a lot of Western history. And that we didn't always 15, attach rights 16. like the ability to drink to sure. an age of majority. Yeah, it's kind of hard to do that when... In many instances, alcohol was safer to drink than water. Yeah. And and just to be clear, practically speaking, what I said about trusteeship or custodianship, practically speaking, a lot of our laws don't end up working out that way. But interestingly, this California law, actually, they tried to write it in such a way where it did recognize that fact because they did not regulate the ability of persons under 21 to keep and bear or to own or possess firearms. They Mm -hmm. regulated their ability to engage in commerce 
in Purchase. fires. Yeah. So they couldn't go out and purchase them. Court ended up saying that was a specious distinction because there's virtually no way to come into possession of a firearm unless you have purchased it. But yeah. that would be why they phrased it that way initially. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So that's sort of how it works. I find the real... So a lot of the court's opinion in this case had to do with obviously the historical meaning of the Second Amendment. And they said, historically, could persons under 21 own firearms? They talk about this for probably 15 pages when it's the most obvious answer in the world. Yeah, they could. That was what the majority of the Continental Army was in the Revolutionary War, was persons under 21. And what I found very, you know, kind of hilarious, honestly, is obviously for decades, people who don't like the right to bear arms, who oppose an individual right to bear arms, have claimed what, David? That, yeah, that, that the Second Amendment right is about, quote-unquote, you know, the militia. Having state the militias, right to, to arms. yeah. Yeah, yeah that the right to bear arms is only for the state militias. It doesn't devolve upon individuals. So, yeah. well, the irony in this case ends up being, well, who do you think was in those state militias? You think yeah. it was mostly people over the age of 21? So, yeah. so, you know, if you want to rely on the state militia argument, it directly cuts against you here. Because if you're saying the Second Amendment applies historically to state militias, then we know that 21-year-olds must, I'm sorry, like 18, 19, 20-year-olds must have been able to purchase guns, must have been able to use guns. Yeah. Because they were in the state militias. I don't think, Second Amendment obviously doesn't refer to state militias. It refers to the right of the keep the people to keep and bear arms, not the right of the state militias to keep and bear arms. But if that right's yeah. existence really is about the state militias, then all the more reason why California's wrong in this case. Yeah, it, it I, is I, I found that though, ironic. Yeah, it, it, there's that, and it's just, it is interesting how so much of these sort of major controversies can be boiled down to just, did you really pay attention to the syntax? And yeah, it's often the case that people don't, or they want to ignore it, or... Well, they, they like to read it, a well-regulated people being necessary to the protection of a free state, the right of the state militia to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. But it doesn't say that. No. (laughs) It says the opposite of that. Yep. So anyway, that's California too, you know. I know your home state, where we're headquartered, but it it, it can have its issues. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're we're right next door to world-renowned, or at least nationally-renowned gun lawyer Chuck Michel. We also take Second Amendment cases we're eager to partner with him on Second Amendment cases. This is certainly one of the bleeding edges in the country when it comes to Second Amendment legislation. Well, last week... That pun we... wasn't intended either. I guess bleeding edge and Second Amendment could... I think that's all right. Um, <laughs> last week, we had quite a lot of focus on current events surrounding the Supreme Court. A lot of that stuff is still percolating, but... We thought this was a good opportunity while we're waiting on sort of some of these things to come to their conclusions to dig a little deeper into one of the things that's been a major issue. We're going to talk about the issue you care about least from that case. (laughs) (laughs) We looked at everything they talked about and we said, which one is the one the average person will care about least? And we picked that one. That's one way to, that's one way to say it. (laughs) Another way to say it is that this is an issue that I think a lot of people have demonstrated some confusion about. Yes. When they've been talking about... Yeah, that's our real priority. The Dobbs we, case. We like, we like to talk about issues where people either commonly repeat things that are just false or don't understand it or things like that. So without further ado, let's not belabor this too much. I'm going to play our clip from Justice Sotomayor. 
Counsel, there's elsewhere. so much that's not in the Constitution, including the fact that we have the last word, Marbury versus Madison. There is not anything in the Constitution that says that the court, the Supreme Court, is the last word on what the Constitution means. It was totally novel at that time. And yet what the court did was reason from the structure of the Constitution that that's what was intended. Okay. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's a few problems with this clip. Do we want to just yeah. dive straight into it? How, how do you want to address this? Yeah, I, let's just give the, the very briefest of context here. Marbury v. Madison, early landmark Supreme Court case that's often and we would say more or less inaccurately described as the origin of the concept of judicial review. Yeah, it's <laughs> what judges do is review. I would say the origin of judicial review is going to be contemporaneous with the origin of judges. Yeah, no, it's 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 one of the things that it's hard to make an argument that you can have law in a legal system particularly, I suppose. Before before we get into that bigger issue, she all she made a number of errors in that clip. She commented <laughs> that uh, the court has the last word when it comes to constitutional interpretation. That is not true. In fact, that's you know yeah, the Constitution doesn't say that because it isn't true. We, the people, yeah. have the last word about what the Constitution says. Yeah, it's it's a kind of a caricature of what judicial review means. The Supreme Court is the last structural word yeah. on the interpretation of the Constitution. But we, the people, are the backstop here. Yeah, so there's that. There's the fact that it's most historians agree who really sort of seriously look at it also— Marbury v. Madison wasn't even the first case of its sort in American history. There were other cases that clearly show the court doing no. basically the same thing. It was maybe the first famous case that did it. Yeah, well, that's, so that's what you've got to do as a court, right? Courts hear cases and controversies, which means somebody's got a dispute. Person A says that the law says X, and person B says that the law says Y. And a judge has got to sort out who's right and who's wrong here. Well, there's lots of different kinds of law, right? I mean, think back like in England, and say you're a serf. Serfs didn't generally have the right to sue, but let's say you did. Maybe you're maybe you're a cobbler, actually, <laughs> rather than, a, I'm, I'm gonna change this example partway through. You're a cobbler, you make shoes, and you got a boss, and your boss says, you need to make shoes with asbestos soles. But the king, way back in 1160, has banned asbestos because he suspects that it causes cancer. So that's exactly the kind of yeah. dispute that could be brought to court. Who's right here? Is your, you have to follow what your boss says? Because that's one kind of law. You got to do what your boss says. And there's another yep. kind of law that says you got to do what the king says. Well, turns out your boss is also subject to the king, so he's not allowed to tell you to do things that are different from what the king says. Yeah. And even in the English context, king is not the highest law. Right. You get that in, we've mentioned this in past uh, Ask an Attorney episodes, but there's a, a very famous case called Dr. Bonham's case, mm -hmm. which isn't even on the first case on this subject. It's just the first recorded, written down case yeah. on this subject, saying that, the king's laws are still subject to the British Constitution, the English Constitution. So you know, even there, and that's, that case I think is from like 1610, something like that. It's from the Elizabethan reign. Yeah. And you know, as far back as that, very, very clear that, of course, a judge has the right to impose a higher law upon a lower one. Yeah, and I think it's, there's this general sense I think people have that 
all this sort of fancy schmancy legal interpretation stuff is a modern invention. And if you go back far enough, it doesn't exist. And it's it's literally in the the Hebrew scriptures <laughs> in in Exodus this is referred to. I mean, when Jethro talks to Moses and he says to set up an appellate court system where the easy questions will be answered by the lower judges and then only the harder questions will get to Moses on appeal. Yeah. So <laughs> There's that. I mean, that's, for sure. that's pretty old. I don't know what year that was written, but that's been around a while. Yeah, but it's also... If it's, if it's not in the Constitution, it's at least from Jethro. Yeah, it's, it's also, though, it's a basically indisputable fact. If you really take even an amateur interest in Western history, which, you know, I do, people between... Well, basically, as far back as you want to look. But up until about, like, the 1600s, people were obsessed with the question of whether government actions had sanction of law. Almost irrespective yes. of what country it was. That was the dispute. Yeah. It was in, you know, very often they came up with some pretty slender justifications that they were, you know, forged documents oh, yeah. were a commonplace, but almost everyone wanted to show, I have a claim in law to do this action I'm taking, including legitimacy. King. That's the reason, the reason why kings are a popular concept throughout history. I, I think we have a video coming out on the Electoral College where we'll mention this in greater depth. The reason kings are a popular concept is that. We at least know that if the last guy had legitimacy, and we all agree that his firstborn son gets to take over after him, then we know that this guy's got legitimacy too, and we have a continuing line of succession. Yeah. That's how we prevent social upheaval and anarchy every few years. Yep. And it's really actually an early modern invention, this idea that whatever the sovereign power is in your country, whatever the highest authority is, governmentally speaking, basically gets to ignore law. That's... A much later development but i yes. think people have sort of taken it for granted and you know in some cases they've actually made it explicit you know parliamentary sovereignty is law now in the uk yes you know it the parliament is supreme really the there, wig takeover yeah the, the courts the courts in the uk can't rule an act of parliament a primary act of parliament unconstitutional which is not the way it used to work as we no. referenced in dr and, bonham's case. you know while I was doing some some poking into this, I found you know that's an explicit provision in the Dutch constitution now as well, which I you know I thought was kind of a bummer. Judges cannot yeah. rule on the constitutionality of primary legislation. So basically, if the the legislative body in the Netherlands passes a law, judges can't say it's unconstitutional. They can do that for regulatory actions. You, they can do that. You for essentially arising under don't it. have a constitution exactly. if judges don't have the authority exactly. to say that. It's implicit in the idea of a constitution, of a written standard that is the supreme law. You need to have someone able to say what is and isn't in conformity with it. Otherwise... Well, partic particularly the body that is charged with hearing cases and controversies yeah. because they're the one that gets to decide whether they're going to enforce a particular mandate. Yeah, yeah. And, and Otherwise, by enforcing a mandate, you're saying that is superior law to whatever law contradicts it. So exactly. if the Constitution says one thing, and whatever the president tells you to do says something else, if the court forces a person to act in accordance with what the president says, they are saying the president's authority is higher than that of the Constitution. Yeah. And so judicial he, review is implicit in the activity of what they're of what they're doing if the Constitution is the law of the land. And it does right. say that it's the law of the land. Yeah, no, it's it's very clear about that. And, you know, this, this idea that judicial review isn't in there is true if you're looking for the phrase judicial review. 
That does not occur. <laughs> the yeah. phrase judicial review isn't in there. Well, I mean, that, that's true of a lot of things. Oh, that's but... true of any number of things. <laughs> but, you know, Article 3, Section 2. I, I've actually, I've heard someone that, believe it or not, is respected in some circles, say that because the Constitution says he, when referring to president <laughs> and vice president, that an originalist shouldn't allow women to be president. Yeah, that's, that's a misunderstanding. <laughs> I'm not going to say his name, but you can find his video on YouTube, and his name rhymes with Werwin Imerinsky. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway. It's a TED Talk. Yeah. I'm not Article, making this up. Article 3, Section 2, though, that, which, it, you know, it, Article 3 deals with the judicial, the judicial branch of the government, says that the judicial power shall, ex- shall extend to all cases in law and equity, and then the first phrase, arising under this Constitution. Constitutional disputes. Yeah. All are, American law is under the Constitution. The Constitution is the authorizing statute for all laws under the Constitution. I think what a lot of people mistake that to mean is that the Constitution created a blank slate. Yeah. You know, we had all these pre-existing laws from little old England that applied way back when. Then we write a Constitution. All that's thrown out and we start over. So, you know, (laughs) if somebody slaps his friend in the head, we don't know if that's illegal yet. We haven't yet evolved a law (laughs) of battery that's equivalent to what would have existed under the common law. That is not how it works. No, not at all. All of the law that existed prior to the ratification of the Constitution continued to be in effect after the ratification of the Constitution, except insofar as it was found to contradict the Constitution. Yeah, and I think the reason that the public has such a a widespread misunderstanding about that, and I think it is widespread, not everyone is under that impression, but lots of people seem to be. I think one of the main reasons is that... We've forgotten what a revolution is. Well, there's that. That's true. Because that's what the French Revolution did do. Yeah, and With disastrous consequences. I was going to say, we lump it in together with the French Revolution, and we say, well, you know, Thomas Paine liked the French Revolution. He was one of our guys, right? Thomas Jefferson talked about his support for the French Revolution. He was one of our guys. So they must have been the same thing, right? And the French Revolution absolutely did purport to start from the ground up. You know, they issued documents that weren't just a system of government, which is what our Constitution does. (laughs) Lo and behold, it turns out we really don't know what's illegal if we start from the ground up. Yeah. (laughs) And we can justify a whole lot of stuff that we couldn't under a a thousand-year-old regime of common law. Yeah. What the French Revolution did do, among other things, was say, we're going to just start from literally nothing and say, these are what human rights are. This is what a citizen's rights are, period. A a bunch of guys sit around in their ivory tower. And it's it's really, it's a committee. So rights by committee. Sit around and think, what would it be nice if we had a right to do? And they wrote all those (laughs) things down and they made a declaration of the rights of man. And the citizen. And that was how they got their rights. That's not how it worked here. No. I mean, you might think that's what our Bill of Rights is. Our Bill of Rights are pre-existing rights people had as British subjects, English subjects under the crown. Yeah. They were rights that had been in many cases abridged prior to our independence movement. So they were rights that, you know, people were afraid might get stripped away again. But even prior to declaring independence, we had brought suit in civil courts defending these rights because they were accepted rights of English subjects. Yeah, exactly. There's an address that Antonin Scalia gave, I believe, before a senatorial committee, but he described the Bill of Rights as an afterthought of the Constitutional Convention, and there's a very real sense in which that's true. It's 100% true. That basically... Because it's, I mean, literally speaking, many states, uh, it was just 
just short of the number needed to ratify the Constitution, ratified it very, very quickly, no questions asked. Yeah. Then in the Without Virginia the ratifying convention, there all of a sudden there was controversy. And this was really spearheaded kind of by Patrick Henry, yeah. who has a, has a sort of a mixed sort of a mixed bag at this period in history. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he has lots of doubts about the Constitution, particularly about the power of the presidency. He doesn't like the idea of a president. And raises all kinds of suspicions, which then have to be dealt with prior to the New York ratifying convention. And that's where we get the Federalist yeah. Papers. That's Madison's, Jay's, and really Hamilton's attempt to defend the Constitution against its detractors. Yeah. And so what the the Bill of Rights was basically a way to assuage people who were concerned that the new form of the federal government would be too powerful. You know, because this was the whole thing. We had the Articles of Confederation turned out basically didn't work in terms of foreign policy, didn't work in terms of really any kind of coordinated action among the states. And so I actually I think there's a strong argument to be made that in philosophical principle, Articles of Confederation confers more power to the federal government than the Constitution. Yeah. But in practice, because it's limited under the Constitution, if the states agree to it under the Articles of Confederation, the federal government has that power. So it is, at least philosophically speaking, unlimited. Theoretically, can do anything practically struggle to do basically anything. Yeah, because the states didn't agree with each other. Right, and you know, you can you can understand <laughs> why. So, at any rate, the main detractors of the form of the Constitution that we... But my my point have, is that it worked badly because the states wouldn't agree. Yeah. It would have worked even worse if they had. Fair. It was just a bad system. <laughs> Fair enough. But basically, the Bill of Rights was everyone agreeing, okay, what are the things that we want a rock solid guarantee you you just can't interfere with these things and everyone okay fine like we weren't going to do this anyway but fine we'll put it in writing that we're not going to infringe on these rights in in some ways it was sort of a greatest hits of that list but which is fair enough yeah. you know, those are all good rights that are on that list yeah. it's good that we've got them in writing i i think that a bit of confusion has been created because we do have a bill of rights yeah the suggestion is that Rather than our Constitution being one of specifically enumerated powers, one where, you know, if the Constitution doesn't say that whatever person, whether it's president, Congress, whoever, if it doesn't say they can do it, then they can't. Right. That's how the Constitution works. Rather than working that way, when you have a Bill of Rights that sort of stands on its own as its own document, it implies that if the right isn't there, that you don't have then, then you don't have right. it. Right, which is... You know, it's a little bit like if, if I hired somebody to reorganize, you know, my silverware draw, silverware drawer (laughs) and i told that person and under no circumstances are you to use the long ladder in my garage yeah and you're like okay well my silverware drawer is accessible without a ladder you don't even have to go in my garage there's no reason to assume you have any power to go in my garage but when i say you can't use the long ladder well, I can certainly imagine a lot of nefarious, kind of mischievous people looking at that later and saying, well, he must be okay with us going in the garage, and he must be okay with us using the short ladder. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's, I think that that's all too true, that we've confused, I think when most people think, and this was sort of the, the bigger thrust of Scalia's address as well, when most people think about the Constitution, the thing they think about is the Bill of Rights, first and foremost. Yeah. And that's not what it was, in, that, A, not what a fraction of the energies that were devoted to the Constitutional Convention went to, Separation of powers and checks and balances yeah. are the real genius yeah. of our And he makes the point, and I think it's an excellent one, that 
if you lack the mechanism aspect of it, the real meat of the Constitution, all of the articles, all the things that come before the amendments, then you can put whatever you want down on a piece of paper and there's no guarantee it's going to happen. It might as well just be he, he a, actually, a I like mission the way statement. He says it. I like the way he says it even better than that. He says the Soviet Union had a much better constitution than we do. It protected everything you could think yep. of. You know, they had a bill of rights. I'm sorry, a much better bill of rights than we do. It protected everything you can think of. Protected every right under the sun, you know. Not just a right to speech, but a right to assemble, a right protest, to... Protest, you know, publish you know, protest, anti-government you know, materials. Publish, yeah. so on and so forth. Yeah, but... But it's just a parchment guarantee. Yeah. There's no mechanism to ensure that that is enforced. Exactly, you know. And that's what our Constitution has that so few in the rest of the world have. Right. I mean... Most of the world doesn't really even have separation of powers. No. Yeah. They've got an independent judiciary, but oftentimes their executive is just literally selected from out of their legislature. That's what a prime minister yeah. is. Yeah. This is a thing that a lot of people bring up. Well, And again, we've got a video coming out about the Electoral College, but a lot of people contrast it unfavorably with parliamentary systems. I think a lot of those people aren't even aware that you don't actually vote for prime minister. You don't. You don't really vote for candidates at all in a lot of parliamentary That's true, systems. too. You vote, you vote for, for a party parties. that then apportions its seats internally. And by the same, you know, under the same logic, you vote for allocation of seats in parliament, and then parliament chooses the prime minister themselves. There's no input from the actual voter in who becomes prime minister. And people complain about there being too little influence on who, uh, you know, from the individual voter in who gets to be president. Going to a parliamentary system does not resolve that problem. No, not at all. Makes not it at much all. worse. Yeah. But I think e- even though, as we said, the, the Bill of Rights was in many ways kind of an afterthought, kind of a thing that was put out there to say, okay, we're, go- we're going to 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt guarantee these things. Even then, though, you look at the text of, for instance, the First Amendment, and it says, Congress shall make no law, and then abridging, and then it lists the rights that it's not going to make a law about. And there's two things that I think are really important in the way that's phrased. One, it says Congress isn't going to do something. And if you wanted, again, to read that in a sort of bad faith manner, you might say, well, okay, so Congress can't do it, but the president can make you know orders about this or whatever. Someone else can abridge your rights. And then the second thing, which that's not the case. The Constitution assumes you've read that Congress is the only thing that can make law. Yes. So you should know nobody can do this. The, if it's the legislative power, it yeah. says in Article 1. Yeah. So it assumes you know that. And then the other thing it assumes is that you already know what your right to free speech consists of because there's tradition about this. It's yes. an understood concept. And we, we've what, got a great video. We have a video called How to Read the Minds of the Founding Fathers. And it's on exactly this subject. I think yeah. that it covers it probably better than we can do today. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. But I want to you know, just point out that in, in the bigger picture, People mistake the kind of thing that the U.S. Constitution is, and they think that it's the kind of thing the French documents were from the French Revolution. That's not the case. And you can see that in the sort of whole philosophy of the way the French Revolution went about things. They decided that they were going to make new administrative divisions for France by basically drawing a bunch of squares on the map of France. Didn't matter what those lines were cutting through. They wanted geometric equal divisions. Well, isn't that what we did in some of our Western states? Yeah, when no one was living there. The problem is some of those <laughs> They French were territories cities, at the time, and then people yeah. started living there, and then those territories requested to become states. Yeah. So even then, their jurisdictional boundaries as far as the present jurisdiction, state jurisdiction, no, it was not drawn by anybody. Yeah. 
But in France, you know, even more strikingly, they're drawing lines through political divisions that are centuries or even like a millennium old. You know, ancient cities with ancient customs, their own polities are being suddenly like separated from their squares are better, David. Yeah, squares are better. Just like units of 10 are better. Yeah, so... I mean, you still hear... I can't believe, you know, 200 years later, you still hear people defending the metric system. One thing that people... I've never heard them defend, but this was another thing they tried. They wanted a 10-day week. And basically, they (laughs) implemented this. How long would your weekend be? Yeah, they implemented this idea. (laughs) And basically, everyone started going insane. You're not going to get most of the Bernie Sanders supporters on board (laughs) if it's still only two days. They they want the the three-day work week, four-day bender. That's the yeah. That's the slogan that that guy had yeah. on his sign that I love. Bernie Sanders, no surrender. Three day work week, four day bender. Uh-huh. Yeah. In the, in, the, in the case of the French Revolution, though, it was more like eight or nine day work week, one day off that you know we graciously grant to you. Yeah, and you don't but, get to go to church that day. Well, I guess no. you can. You can go to Notre Dame where we've enshrined the goddess Reason. Yeah. As but they tried to implement this system. And basically, people immediately started going insane because it turns out that 10-day work weeks or, you know, 10-day units of time just messed with everyone's perception of I think I think the they had 10 hours in a day, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. They For got rid of the 24-hour clock because 24 is an irrational type of number. And they said, let's be round. Let's make it 10. And no one knew how to calculate time anymore. No one could find each other at the right times. So Everything I, I guess the takeaway from this is sometimes, you know, I'm not going to say all the time. But sometimes it's better to look at what people actually do yep. and what appears to work effectively and what experience hath shown is effective for yep. accomplishing a desired goal rather than just sitting around and thinking about things purely in the abstract and coming up with what you think would be the best idea. Yeah. And that is that latter thing. That is not what the framers of our Constitution did. Justice Sotomayor is dead wrong to suggest that our Constitution is the sort of document where you would even need to infer from its structure that judicial review is a thing. Right. It's inherent in constitutionalism as envisioned in the American Constitution. Yeah. And I think we can say that arguably one of our primary goals as an organization is to get people to understand the Constitution didn't create a structure out of nothing. It imposed yeah. limits on a system that everyone already broadly agreed was in existence, and it operated on rights that everyone acknowledged they already had. Yeah. And so one of those things, one of those things that is an unspoken assumption, but a very easy to find assumption about the Constitution, is this idea of judicial review, that the courts have the right to interpret the law. Yeah, that's what that's, they're there for. That's a basic if function they, of what a court if, is. Yeah, and I feel like that shouldn't that. be controversial. <laughs> No, not not even a little bit. You know, Congress exists to write laws, not investigate crimes or engage yeah. in witch hunts. Courts exist to interpret laws. Maybe next week we'll get into what the president's there for, but <laughs> maybe that'll surprise you too. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so anyway, that'll that'll wrap up our little spiel here, and it's time to move on to our final segment. Uh, you've known it by a couple names so far. We're gonna try out another one. Uh, so we, we've called it the law sauna. I think you hated that one the most. We've called it... Yeah, that was not, you know, it wasn't suited to my preferences. No, we've, we've called it burning questions this week. That was a little bit better. Feels like something I might watch on TBN. But... This week, we are going to call it The Sizzler. This is, 
I think there's already something called that. That's that's true. There may be something called that, but it's what we're going with. And I, I've prepared. Is, does a this little, fall in fair use? A little sound effect. <laughs> um, so this week it's the sizzler, but basically it's hot takes. Hot takes from online. So hot they sizzle this time. Maybe around. we can get maybe we can get the restaurant chain to sponsor it. <laughs> I looked it up, and I've never been to a sizzler. Really? It turns out that it's it's local to California, actually very close to. Huh. Where, where we're headquartered in Mission Viejo. So, I had no idea. I, I assume they were everywhere. That shows how much of a California guy I am. Yeah. It's one of those things where I, I grew up I grew up on the East Coast, and I'd seen it referenced in TV and movies and stuff, but I'd never seen them around. I was like, so, oh, you know, by the I way, don't know. But, for those of you listening from out of state, you're missing out. Sizzler's great. <laughs> it's very inexpensive steaks, lobster, shrimp, uh, along with uh, a very extensive salad bar. It's got tacos and... All kinds of things. The, uh, I will say that everything in that, you know, description up to the tacos, there's something like that everywhere. One of the weirdest things well, as an outsider to, particularly good though. Take my word on it. <laughs> as an outsider to California, who you know, I've spent a lot of time there over the years. I've lived there for like a combined decade or so of my life. The way Mexican food is just sort of slapdash combined with other sorts of things, and I'm not even saying it's bad. It's often very good. It's very unique. To California, so the the you know steak, lobster, shrimp, salad bar. Sure, that sounds like any number of things. Then when you add tacos, that's when it gets weird. <laughs> oh, that doesn't seem that weird to me. Well, because you grew up in California. <laughs> I guess uh, that's everything's better with Mexican food. Anyway, yeah, I, I'm not going to dispute with you that Mexican food is great. I agree, it's it's probably my favorite food. But <laughs> anyway, that's that's enough for our food corner, I guess. <laughs> Bearing in mind the conversation we had about the Supreme Court and what its constitutional part is, let's let's move on to our first hot take. All right. So this is from Twitter again. Yes, it is. Most of these are going to be from Twitter, I think. Just a reminder, Supreme Court decisions are only binding to the parties before the court. Hashtag Supreme um, Court. <laughs> okay, this guy doesn't understand what a common law system is. He needs to no. listen to everything we just <laughs> talked about, about judicial review. And uh, I just realized another irony, uh, I, you know, to sort of keep myself entertained while I'm collating these things, I give them sort of fanciful names when I save them to my computer. Okay. Um, I called this one Supreme Like at Taco Bell. So carrying <laughs> on with the, the theme of Mexican food. All right. Yeah, we've, we've already d- sort of explained in multiple ways, I suppose, not just on this podcast, but elsewhere, why that's wrong. <laughs> but basically, <Yeah>, that's... <laughs> precedent does matter in a common law system, which America is. Yeah, it's, I mean... Otherwise, you've got pretty tyrannical judges, right? If they can just decide whatever they, way they want in any given case. Yeah. I mean, much better to say that once it's been decided a certain way, other people can conduct their lives assuming it's going to be decided the same way when their case gets hurt. Yeah, because in, in many ways, I would say after making sure that the laws you have are good and just themselves, I think the number one virtue you can have as a legal system is ensuring consistency of interpretation. It's it's even debatable. That's more important in many yeah. instances. Than yeah. Assuming in in terms of like avoiding like, practical I, I don't know which side of the road is more just and good to drive yeah. on. I don't particularly care. <laughs> I just want other people to drive on the same side that I. Yeah. Am. No. In, in terms of avoiding consequences that are you know devastating to you, yes, the consistency is more important. Right. I will say that. Yeah. But it's I think between those two things, that's like almost everything you want. It's it's number one in some instances, number two in others. Yeah, and the way you get that is by ensuring that people know what precedent is and that they actually follow it. And that's, yeah, that's one of the functions of the Supreme Court. Yes. All right, this one is going to be a two-parter, and it's uh, there's kind of a lot to it. 
So uh, maybe let's let's do this one as a dialogue. You read the first person, I'll read the second person. We'll, okay, we'll go sounds good. Way. All right. This is again from Twitter. Yep. Okay, so I'll start reading now. Mm-hmm. The fact that I know more about Johnny Depp's and Amber Heard's relationship than I do about the crimes committed by Jenny and Clarence Thomas shows exactly what is terribly wrong with today's political mainstream media. And then in reply, <laughs> can I point something obvious out to you that will piss you off? Neither one of them has been accused of a crime. I've read her texts. They were shrill, which we, you know, we listened yeah. to a couple weeks ago for that. Um, there's some interesting stuff there. They were shrill, but cross no legal boundary I can see. What exact crimes do you have evidence of? And then let okay, me pull so the second guy is just right two. here. Yep, let's pull up part two. That, that's you, the first intelligent comment we've seen from Twitter. <laughs> you, read, you read this one. Whether she committed a crime can only be determined after an investigation, but potential crimes based on publicly available evidence would be capitalized sedition, interference with a congressional procedure... What? Clarence should be investigated as to why he didn't recuse himself. Plenty there. All right. The last one's not a crime. I don't know what the second to last one's talking about. And you don't need to capitalize sedition. That is a crime. But the important thing about all of this is, and I think, I thought most people knew this, Mm -hmm. but in an American legal context, you are innocent until you are proven guilty. You have every stage prior to a, you know, the jury coming out and, and telling you what the verdict is, you are innocent. Yeah, there is a presumption so. of innocence, not, as this guy seems to imply, a presumption that you're guilty until we've managed to investigate you and find... Guilty of failing to recuse yourself, yeah. because well, that's there's, a crime. there's that. So, you know, and we, we, we have, <laughs> uh, we've, we've talked before about recusal standards and, and what's going on there. So I'd, I'd like to set that aside and just I talk about... It's concerning how just how many people on Twitter are in favor of replacing the rule of law with essentially a lynch mob. Yeah, no, that's the idea that someone got the idea in their head that you committed a crime. And until you can prove you didn't, <laughs> we're going to assume you did. And actually, we conduct the trial to see if you may be able to exonerate yourself. Not well, and to all, of actually... all of that's politically motivated, too. I mean, you yeah. look at the things that he's charged, that he wants to charge the Thomases with. Sedition. I mean, the only plausible claim for sedition there is if you believe that advocating for the Republican Party is seditious. Pretty much. Pretty much. I mean, all, all she did was encourage uh, the, the former chief of staff to continue the, their claims, you know, litigating. Yeah. So in, I want to be clear. I don't care what your assessment of the facts in that case are. You could think that, you know, there was it was always the stupidest thing in the world for anybody to suggest that the the outcome of the election wasn't right. I don't care what you think. It's not a crime to try to ask the courts to say that no. as well. They're, they're, um, the proper, they're the properly empowered instruments in our government to decide whether or not. So but at any rate, yeah. It's you know. certainly not a crime to ask people. You know, maybe the legislatures could have said, you guys are all nuts and the election was totally fine. Leave us alone. Yeah. But nobody said that. Yeah, and, you know, that, that's an option, too, for them the to basically... The media said that a look, lot, but they're not an empowered <laughs> element in our government. That's an option, too, for the courts to say and be like, no, you know, this is frivolous, go away. That can happen, but... It didn't. 
asking them to to <laughs> confirm or deny that is not a crime. Let's go on to the next one. This one, you know, this one has a, a word that I think we probably don't want to say out loud here. Just it's 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 not the worst word, but it's it's mildly rude. So I'll ask you to uh, self censor here a little bit. But I'll be careful. Dear, uh-huh. <laughs> oh, it's an offensive term for those on the left who think Facebook is a privately owned business. There's a thing called fact checking. Facebook is a public business that's publicly <laughs> traded. I don't yeah, think that's and, even true. You know, we talked before. I think it is. I, I, think I don't it, think, or, is Facebook publicly traded? They talked about an IPO anyway. I don't actually remember what happened there. I remember distinctly they were talking about an IPO. It may I, or I may don't not know. have happened. Not, I don't keep track and of that. that we closely. talked before about why whether or not it's a private company is in some ways irrelevant to, to some of these free speech issues that have come up. But... Right. So this is this clearly what's going yeah. on here is this person's confused about the word public. They're they're thinking that a public yeah. company is like the same thing as a public utility. Uh, public does not mean government owned. In when you're talking about a company being public, it means that you can just go out and buy shares without talking to. Yeah. And you know the same way somebody affiliated the fact that with you the can company. go to the store and buy like toilet paper doesn't make that toilet paper public property. <laughs> you could go you could go to the stock exchange and no. buy stocks. <laughs> You still privately own that stock when you bought it, and so does everyone else who owns it. Yeah. Now, public schools doesn't just right. mean schools that are out in the open. That means government-run schools. So there is, you know, where public is used two different ways. This person just doesn't has seem failed to, be aware. to has failed to internalize that distinction. And I brought this that one up mainly because it's an extremely common error that I see. I could have gotten you two dozen I don't know that I've ever that. seen that one on it. It's, it's a mistake people seem to be making a lot lately. So I just right. thought we would, you know, we would go on record and say, you should make sure you understand the sense of the word public before you say something with that much conviction in a public forum. Yeah, please do that. <laughs> all right. Uh, and then they, want, right. they can't they can't apply that though, David. They don't know the public forum. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I used the word in the definition again. Ah, in shoot. an open forum. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in a place where lots of people can see you say it. How about that? Yes. <laughs> All right, and then this is another one that, and you'll I think you'll find this one shocking. This is another one where I had like at least half a dozen options for the same basic point. We're just gonna go with this particular one. But in, I think all of the, the ones this week are Twitter, so this is also a Twitter one. Okay, so this one says, I, they're responding to something evidently, yeah. but it says, no, it isn't. Given that they were not allowed to bring in pictures, testimony is not real evidence. <laughs> testimony are statements made by a witness in court, while evidence is anything admitted by a court to prove or disprove alleged matters of fact in a trial. Well, so, okay, so this person at some point before posting this, looked up the definition of evidence because they didn't previously know it. And they accurately (laughs) state the definition of evidence, but then didn't realize that it contradicts the first thing they said. Now, this is going to... Acknowledge evidence is anything admitted by a court to prove or disprove alleged matters. Mm Mm-hmm. This is this That's may make what your testimony head explode. Is. If, if I say, I saw that guy stab that other guy in the back, mm-hmm. does that tend to prove or disprove allegations of murder? No, because you could be lying, and so that's not proof. Um. Well, <laughs> right. I mean, tends to di- prove yeah, or disprove. Yeah. This, it, you know, this what I'm about to favor. tell you, may actually cause your head to explode, but... I believe this I'm, person... I'm holding it together. My I'm, hands are on my head. From you what I recall me, of the but. context, I believe this person said that they were a second-year law student. Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> wow. So they're, so they're citing the definition from their evidence class, then? Probably. 
<sighs> but that per- whoever was teaching it, they probably go to Harvard, don't they? <laughs> I don't think they. First of all, you know, there's no proof that this person is <laughs> and is in fact a law student. That, that's the only school in the country that I can imagine wouldn't teach people what evidence is. <laughs> but yeah, assuming that they they are in fact they were not lying, are a law student. Whoever was teaching right. that class really failed to drive across some basic. Just, just so we're clear, testimony is. I'm not even going to say the main kind of evidence. Testimony is really the only kind of evidence. Other kinds of evidence, if you want to submit physical evidence, for mm-hmm. instance, like a murder weapon or uh, even documents and records that have been produced, you always need to have somebody testifying about that because somebody yeah. has to speak to the authenticity of those records. We have to know that it's actually the gun the police found. We have to know that these are actually the emails this person sent. And you always have to have somebody testify about that in order to authenticate it, unless it's you know something like an historical record or something that's yeah, the judge can take judicial notice of. But in most circumstances, if it's something that's even possible to contest, you got to have somebody testify about it. And the reason for that is that juries are still the very best way that we know of to determine whether or not somebody's telling the truth. It turns out that 12 lay people voicing their opinion about somebody's veracity is a much, much better way of getting straight to that truth than any kind of expert, any kind of, well, the DNA says so, you know, anything mm-hmm. like that. It's still looking somebody in the eye and examining whether or not that person is being truthful. Yeah, and I think I blame in some ways shows like CSI for people's people's perception that physical evidence is the end-all, be-all, and even particularly DNA evidence, which... I mean, they've actually had real problems on a lot of juries in, in some jurisdictions in the past few years where it's gotten very difficult to get convictions without DNA evidence, even though... You know, DNA is much more suspect than somebody's oh, testimony yeah, and, because it's very difficult to keep a chain of custody on DNA. Yeah. You can't really see it. Uh, you can say the thing it was collected on, you know, the chain of custody on that's been preserved. But even then, maintaining that chain of custody depends on many different people's veracity. Yep. You're examining every person involved in that chain of custody in order to say that thing is what they're claiming it is, as opposed to... If you're looking at witness testimony, that's just one guy. They're testifying about what they actually saw, heard, felt, you know, yeah. five cents stuff. Yep. And, you know, A, there's, you know, there's been this sort of, in some ways it's a propaganda campaign by, you know, parties like the FBI to get us to believe that DNA evidence is basically foolproof, assuming it, even assuming it all goes right. Like, it's we about actually, the least foolproof. Yeah. But like even because if, even assuming if, if anybody if anybody in that chain of custody has good reason to try to plant evidence on somebody, it's about the easiest way to do. It. Yeah. Because you can't have anybody else in that chain of custody look at the DNA and say, "Oh, that wasn't the same DNA that I collected." Right. Yeah. You'd have no way of knowing. And it's also when you think about the way that you would have to collect, sample, test, interpret, and store all of the information that goes into DNA evidence. Anyone making a mistake, forgetting something, mislabeling something, mixing something up at any point in that process is going to make that evidence useless or worse than useless. 
And it's yeah. so well, easy and, to and do it's, that. And juries are told that because it's scientifically certain, they should put more weight on that than other evidence. Yeah. Don't trust the science. No. Okay. <laughs> you, you, you should trust the science, but you should trust science to make the conclusions that the science validly demonstrates that it can make. Right. And You shouldn't expect the science to be a genie or no. a No. You, you have to keep an eye on the holistic context. And one of the key ways you do that, as it turns out, is you get eyewitness testimony or otherwise firsthand testimony. Yeah. Yep. So anyway, this yeah, person... This, this one is really disappointing. Is You're right, David. Uh, as we've mentioned in past episodes, a dollar a day can keep this person <laughs> off Twitter or <laughs> at least educate them so they post on Twitter intelligently. Keep this boy out of Harvard. Uh, it's clearly not a good influence on well, him. Well, I, th- I think uh, Lady, the, the username has oh, Miss I'm in sorry. it. Um, it's it's but, a, it looks like it's some kind of uh, East Asian language. Well, you, you gotta really... you, you're not on Twitter, so I'll, I'll I'll throw you this one for free. This part at the top is called the display name. That is in uh, characters, but then this part that's the username. Oh, I see, I yeah. see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, well, then this <laughs> we'll keep this lady off of Twitter yeah. or out of Harvard, what have you. Yeah, keep keep our kids off the streets and our law students out of Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't want them to grow up to be a Supreme Court justice. No. <laughs> anyway, with that, we've already probably gone a little over time. Oh, so. way over. <laughs> so let me just say that this has been a production of the Lex Rex Institute. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll come back. Yep. Thank you so much, everybody. All right. Good night. Good night.